I'm Julie Rossiter, and this is Poetry Spoken Here. Our featured poet today is Anthony Bernini, who lives and writes in Brunswick, New York, a couple of hours north of New York City. Bernini is interesting in that he is the kind of poet who began young in high school writing poetry, continued writing consistently, passionately, but waited decades before he finally went out and began giving readings and publishing his work. So we'll be hearing about his views of poetry and his poems. I'm sure you'll find them quite interesting. We'll follow that with a review of W.S. Merwin's new book, Garden Time, just out from Copper Canyon Press. I'm Charlie Rossiter, and this is Poetry Spoken Here. Our guest today is Anthony Bernini, who was born and raised in Manhattan's Lower East Side, and has a long narrative poem, The Escape of Coelia, which is about a Roman girl who in 506 BCE eluded the Etruscans and was heroically celebrated in Rome. His work is in the permanent archive of the Italian Americana Review. He's the author of two books of poetry, Distant Kinships and Immediate Worlds, and he now lives and works in Brunswick, New York. So, Anthony, I was asking you a little earlier, like, uh, what's on your mind about poetry? And you mentioned something about being uh, an outsider. I was an outsider in the sense, in several senses. The first being that uh, <clears throat> I... Did not have, I don't have my poetic experience rooted in academic experience. Unlike some poets I admire who have masters in fine arts, uh, my poetry is rooted in uh, candlelight at my childhood bedside when I would sneakily stay awake with a pencil in my hand, writing on cheap pulp paper that I would then share with a buddy of mine. Who Ninth grade. <laughs> that sounds too pure to be true. It's, it's the truth. It's the truth. So you started writing for yourself. You mentioned that too, Alan. When you first were writing, you didn't have big aspirations that I'll be the famous poet or girls will come running just going to write poems. Yeah, you know, I. it seems to me in the end that I write poetry because I have to. It's not that I set out to write poetry. Poetry sometimes grabs me by the scruff of the neck. And, uh, and the process of creating a poem begins to happen. I mean, poets, poets who will live in the public eye much longer than I ever have or will have been thinking about that topic for a very long time. You know, what is, what is poetry? How does it happen? I think. I think Wallace Stevens described it as being a secretion. I mean, you know. <laughs> did, you, did you come to poetry? Did you, are you aware that, did you read some poetry that inspired you? Or just, you heard there was this thing called poetry out there and thought, well, I'll do that a little bit and see what happens? Or, well, you know, do you the know earliest, how you started? The earliest things I can remember, well, of course, for a person of my age who came of age in 
the early 60s, early mid 60s, there was Bob Dylan, especially in New York City. Um, and Bob Dylan was was as close to being a poet as a city kid who really didn't think about poetry uh, came to. Yeah, uh, you know, there was Bob Dylan, and uh, then you know, probably the earliest memory I have of a, a real interest in a poet was was uh, E. E. Cummings, uh, whose work me and my little circle of Ninth year old, nine year, nine, ninth grade friends uh, really took to. But, uh, you know, I could look to people, uh, Elizabeth Bishop and uh, oh, a whole host of the famous people, you know, uh, who, who have inspired me. You know, the web of life is such, especially the web of, the web of communication is such that uh, you don't know the influence that anything you do or say really has going out into the future or out into the into the periphery or perhaps even behind you. Yeah. I mean, you know, you do you do something and it influences somebody who you'll never meet and who will never meet you. Poems are like that, that's for sure. Yeah, right. Yeah. Can you remember any particular poem that you really went, Oh my god. Well, Lake Isle, the Lake Isle of Industry. Really? Yeah. yeah. That was, of course, a little later on. But mm. That one did it to me. <laughs> That's great. Well, you want to read Paul? Sure. And it'll have an influence we don't even know about. Don't even know. About. Well, someone we don't even know. Well, here's a poem. Here's a poem I'll read. Since we're talking about influencing, this is a this is a forthright. This, this is an old poem. It's, it was a forthright appeal to people to step out and be who they are poetically. Um, and it grew, it grew out of my experience with open mics. It, uh, it was a poem that actually it, it appears on a, uh, a compact disc called Volume. And uh, the title of the poem is You Have Four Minutes. And the, the reason for the title was because uh, the, the first open mic I ever went to was, was, uh, was uh, hosted by, uh, by a wonderful poet named Tom Nattel, who um, the way he, he did, his, did his thing at, uh, at the beginning of every, uh, every session, and he'd say, you have four minutes. <laughs> You don't have seven, you don't have, you know, 15, you have four minutes. So, read. And uh, so this is, this is the poem that grew out of that experience. And it was, I like to think of it as my gift to the uh, spoken word, open mic community. It's called, You Have Four Minutes. You have four minutes. You or anyone to speak poetry. We listen and wait. Beginning right now, invoke the whole world. Some planet that you choose could be anyone. You can change it all. You can change yourself. 
become the dragon, become the tiger, select a phylum closer to the ground, dare to be a peach. You have four minutes to be eaten whole. We won't spit you out, not even the pit. We are circling your unvoiced center. We are vigilant for the bony part nestled in your words. Everybody needs marrow in the mouth. One minute ago, many of us died, lost and wandering, crushed by empty ears. You have four minutes. Reach across your world. Find us where you are. <laughs> I remember hearing you read that poem years ago. I love that poem. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> and it is a pan to the open mic scene and to the the possibilities. I mean, open mic is a really interesting thing. You don't know what you're going to get. You never you, know. You may love it. You may hate it. But it's going to be someone's heartfelt expression, if nothing else. Yeah. I don't know. Uh, the, the theme there of, of be yourself almost is, is something E. Cummings would say. <laughs> I think if you were here, mm -hmm. you'd probably go that same way. But you, you said you... you uh, are pretty much self-taught with poetry. You were not an English major. No, that's true. Well, there is the the only formal uh, training you might say that I think I got was I I had the good fortune to to attend a uh, <clears throat> a poetry workshop up here at uh, SUNY Albany that was given by John Montague some years ago. And uh, it was a wonderful experience for me. You know, 12, 12 poets sitting around a table with John Montague. Pretty exciting if you've never met John Montague. Uh, wonderful Irish poet. And um, what, what I learned from John Montague was, uh, you know, he, people would be, would be reading, people would read their stuff and he'd say, What's the title of the poem? And somebody would say, "Well, you know, I'm not, I'm, I'm not sure. I'm not, you know." It's, he says, "You've got to know what the title of the poem is before you can really focus the poem." And I think he's right. You know, I, for me, uh, sometimes I'll start writing without really knowing, without having a clear, sharp, distinct idea of what I'm writing about. Um, you know, if you've ever read some of the poems that William Blake wrote, you know, you read the poem and, and you don't, you don't get to the question sometimes, what's this poem about? You know, <laughs> I mean, the word, because the words just sort of, they pick you up and they carry you off. Uh, but for the most part, you know, poems are, are about something and, and the, and the something, you know, you get a chance when you, when you title the poem, you get a chance to to give it parameters. Yeah. 
So that's the closest I ever got to yeah. formal training. Yeah. That's a wonderful workshop. Oh. Anybody in academia who's listening, SUNY Albany, this guest professor, prestigious guest professor like John Montague, offers one, one semester a year a workshop that community people apply for and are accepted into, and they get to meet with him. They're not students. They're not related to the university. They're just people who, who knew about this thing and applied to participate and get a tremendous uh, workshop experience. Uh, when I lived in Albany, I did it too, and it was just really wonderful. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I believe in that. People don't put titles on their poem. I say, no. If, if I'm teaching anybody about poetry, I say, no, you'll really look like a beginner. Don't do that. Just even for that, if no other reason. And by the way, yeah, you can help, like, give a hint of what it's about or what you think it's about mm -hmm. or something. But, yeah, put a title there. It's a great opportunity uh, that you have as the writer. Just say what you want, just like throughout the poem. So, yeah. Well, let's try another poem. Okay. This is a much more recent poem, and I, I, I like to have a, a pretty strong sense of place in my poem. To me, uh, poems could be timeless, but usually they, they abide somewhere. And um, I've always been a, an admirer of... Uh, my fellow creatures, never forgetting, perhaps, that I am a creature. Uh, at least that's the goal. <laughs> so this is a poem. Uh, really, it's a poem out of, you know, some poems come to you from nowhere. Well, this poem came to me from somewhere. This poem, poem came right to my house uh, because one day uh, a hawk struck a window. And uh, so the name of this poem is The Hawk Who Struck the Window. And from there, it traveled to, to here. The hawk, in swift descent, unhinging force from mass, dropped from a cloudless sky like sudden rain, closed on a startled dove, staggered its brain, then wheeling at a wall of sudden sun-bright glass, was challenged where a mirror image of itself, bent crooked by the burden of its kill, swung in, crossing a lethal parallel, and struck the window pane, sundering half from half, cradled with folded wings in Myrtle's deep twilight, the hawk lay on its side, an upturned ship, slack talons, plying absence, could not grip, the golden eyes still glowing gave the hawk no sight, until one wing extended, reached out, heaven-bent. That vision struck within of hawk in flight, flared through what was inert, and raised it 
revenant. Oh, what an incident. <laughs> Lovely details in there. Yeah, yeah. That's one where the language picks picks up beyond what's being said. You know, another another way I have thought about poetry when I've thought about poetry, E. A. Robinson, I think, was a poet who said, you know, writing writing poetry is trying to is trying to uh, express what you can't say in words. These days, are there particular poets that you look out for, seek out, want to see a new book from, or anything like that? W.S. Merwin. <laughs> wow. That would be one, for sure. <laughs> Lucky you, one's coming out soon. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but what's interesting is you don't write what I think people would call Zen-style poetry, but there seems to be a lot of Zenishness behind what you're doing in terms of your, your attitudes about poetry and life in general. I think of your, you, you're expressing a pretty ego-free approach to poetry. You're, you were telling me that the poem should exist externally of the poet. So the person reads the poem, it's not that they go, wow, that Bernini guy writes great poetry. It's just they go, whoa, I can see that hawk. People will see that hawk long after Bernini is gone, if they saw it at all. Okay, you're consistent. <laughs> yeah, so that's the way it strikes me anyway. So it's interesting. I read a lot of the Chinese poets. Do you, do you read them in translation? I'm I, just wondering. I, I do sometimes. I do. I mean, I love reading haiku. When I even write some haiku. You know, you, translation is a, it's a topic that, that uh, to me, it stands astride. Uh, the poem in a way that uh, you can't, you shouldn't ignore. Um, you know, if you have a thought expressed in one language and you express the thought in another language, it, it would be essentially the same thought. But I think, I think I agree with what I understand T.S. Eliot once said about emotion uh, that if you that if you if you have an emotion that's expressed in the la in, in the words of one language, it's not going to be the same emotion when it might be expressed in the words of another language. It's a different emotion. These, you know, you could have, I think, a a fine poem in English, and then if it's if it's translated into Polish, it might also be a, a fine poem. Mm -hmm. But I but I think it's not the same. It's not the same at all. Yeah. So you know, I, I sometimes wonder, and I'll and I'll only wonder because I'll never I'll never learn Mandarin or you know. Mm -hmm. But I, I wonder what yeah. what these poems have moved me. You know. Yeah. Hokusai. The Hokusai I could come to know will never be the Hokusai yeah. that people who read. And I also think about the experience would have to be so different when some of these old poems really were just stuffed with rhymes. Yeah. And and if you if you did it in English, it would probably be off-putting. Um, 
you know, at least today with our sensibility and what we're used to reading in poetry, uh, which is be, be off-putting, and that would be closer to the original, but, well, in sound. I don't know what it would be in terms of the meaning and the original expression. As you said, we'll just never know. Mm-hmm. I know. I, ju- I just always hope the translator, and I, I will say that Sam Hamill does a really good job. Somehow, I think I like the poets better when they're his translations. I don't know. If, I don't know what that means. It may just mean I like the way he writes. He writes poetry, so when he goes for the ideas, mm-hmm. that's what he gets. And Rex Roth, generally speaking, I like everything Rex Roth ever did. Yeah, his translations, yeah, just just feel right. Well, uh, I think we got time for another poem and uh, talk about it a little bit. Let's get another poem in here. Okay. Unless you're unless you're one of these poets who just bubbles over with. Work, you know, I talked about Dylan before. If you're old enough to remember uh, bringing it all back home and the rock albums, like Highway 61, yeah, he he put three, he put out three albums in the space of something like 15 months. I mean, they were just crammed full of lyrics that he irrepressible lyrics, you know. But if you're if you're if you're if you're sitting there and you're thinking of yourself as being a poet and you want to write something and you can't ever and you can't come up with anything, there's always death. <laughs> I mean, there's always death, right? And uh, you know, I, <clears throat> I I seem to have written a lot of things centered around death. So this is our poetic tip, our sort of, <laughs> our, our prompt of the week is folks. That's remember, right. there's always death. There's always death. Always death. <laughs> Never far from somewhere. Um, so, so this is um, this is this is a poem about a a wonderful person who had happened to be my mother-in-law, and um, who I greatly admired. The poem comes from one of those discussions that we were having around the table one day. Uh, <clears throat> about well, do you want to be buried? Do you want to be cremated? And so this was this was her view of things that I then took off on. The poem is called Disposition. Put me out, said Sally, with the trash laid to rest in a closed plastic bag. From cremation or the grave, she parsed our curb. Pronounced just there, beside the mailbox, journey's end. Ready, at the fringe of the familiar, to subsist in undistinguished form. Waiting to be carried off by credulous young men. Insensible to the weight of her slight frame that had carried Darwin, and Josephus. Undertakers with soft eyes and dark suits, the calla lilies and the ash, the rented pieta, she dismissed with a quick wave of her hand. A bird lifting one wing to set a feather into place. An elegance of earth fired with that constant grace, lying close 
within the small stones and wildflowers. Right. <laughs> and there was a great use of the title with the multiple meanings of disposition. Yeah. yeah. Practicing what you preach. There you go. That's great. Well, this is Poetry Spoken Here. I'm Charlie Rossiter, and we have been talking with Anthony Bernini of Upstate New York. I'd like to talk a little bit about W.S. Merwin's new book, Garden Time. Poet laureate W.S. Merwin has won almost every major poetry prize in existence including two Pulitzers. His legacy is based not only on his writings, but also on his environmental activism. Now, near 90, Merwin has dedicated over three decades to turning his 19-acre property in Maui, Hawaii, into a private conservatory with the most comprehensive collection of palms in the world. His intent is to eventually leave the property as a preserve and a writer's retreat. In his latest book, Garden Time, from Copper Canyon Press, W.S. Merwin provides us a glimpse of the issues and concerns of a fine mind aging, concerns a reader of any age might share. The poems in this collection are quiet, contemplative meditations on mortality, aging, memory, identity, and consciousness. In them, Merwin is highly philosophical, highly poetic, as always, and never didactic. He provides his thoughts and questions about the deeper elements of human existence and invites us to ponder them. Above all, he's provocative. Whether he asks an explicit question, reports a personal observation, or simply shares his wonderings in the poem, One Sonnet of Summer, he speaks of connections between his unborn self and the world he was about to enter, implicitly suggesting something about the nature of human consciousness, he says. I am an autumn child, and my first summer I was here but was not yet born. I heard the leaves whisper on their branches, the cicadas growing in their songs. I listened to all the languages of summer, in which the time was talking to itself. I was born in autumn, knowing the sound of summer. In another poem, Only Now, Merwin looks back on his long life and thinks about life purposes, noting the selective nature of personal memory. We thought we would recall the single place we had set out for and forget the rest. But it is the going we remember. It is the way that comes along with us and with no one else now, and the place we set out for was not there even then. Merwin is fascinated by the unanswerables, questions for which we can never find definitive answers, such as what was it like in the time before language, that mysterious human creation that can never fully express the meanings we hold in our minds and wish to share. Once a question is raised, Merwin might suggest the direction of his thoughts, but he will never provide answers. If there are answers, he leaves it to the reader to discern them. 
Merwin views aging and his own advanced age from varied angles. In Meditations on Aging and Identity, he talks about being the same person today in his ninth decade that he was as a youth. In the poem Summer Sky, he says, I saw childhood as I sat alone in silence by the high window. No one else saw it. No one else would ever recognize it. It is the same child now who watches the clouds change. They appear from out of sight and change as the moment passes through them. In another called Laughing Child, he describes an incident when he was three months old that his mother later told him about. This was his first January, that's January 1928. She'd put him in the backyard in a carriage, looked out the window and saw that the carriage was shaking. And she saw that what it was was the baby was in the carriage and laughing. And something about that reassured her. He later says that she real, he realized then that he'd been a happy child. And she knew that. And she must have kept that through the gray cloud of all her days. And now, out of the horn of my dreams of my life, I wake again into the laughing child, seeing the continuity between himself then and himself today. To those who know Merwin's work, the poems of Garden Time will have a familiar look. Overwhelmingly, they are short. All but a few fit on a single page. He continues to generally eschew punctuation, leaving line breaks and occasional stanza breaks to give the reader hints of how to read. The poems are simultaneously clear yet complex. Like all great art, these poems give the reader something upon first reading. But rereading is rewarding as layers of meaning are revealed. I'll close with some lines from a poem I find particularly provocative. The Present. It's a concluding poem in the book in which he talks about an angel as they were leaving the garden giving them a present and saying, I don't know what it is. I don't know what it's good for. You will not be able to keep it or to keep anything. I'd love to read the entire poem, but it's better that you read it yourself. And finally, he concludes by saying, but they both reached at once for the present. And when their hands met, they laughed. Garden Time by W.S. Mowen. I'm Charlie Rossiter. This has been Poetry Spoken Here. Join us again next time and let poetry speak to you. You've been listening to Poetry Spoken Here. I'm Charlie Rossiter, inviting you to join us again next time to let poetry speak to you. Music for today's program was written and performed by Jack Rossiter Monley. And remember, Poetry Spoken Here is more than a podcast. You can like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash poetry spoken here. Follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash poetry spoken here. For more about today's show and other Poetry Spoken Here podcasts, as well as our blog, just visit our website, poetryspokenhere.com. If you'd like to submit suggestions of poets or topics for future podcasts, you can send to our email address, poetryspokenhere 
at gmail.com. <laughs>